We are in Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Open your Bible, navigate on your device. The topic in Psalm 45, it was written for a royal wedding and the Psalm three times emphasizing being glad. The title of our message, I'm so glad, I'm so glad, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. Cream, early cream, Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning to live stream to our families at home. Pray, Lord, that they would be excited to hear the word with their uh, immediate family or maybe some friends that have gathered for breakfast. Thank you for the crowd that's here this morning, Lord, that is hungry for your word as well. And, and Lord, we pray that even in an archive that this message would go out as uh, to our people especially, Lord, but to others who could benefit by it. And I pray that you would guide us through it, Lord, because without the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, all words fall on deaf ears, and, and they're just words of wisdom of man, Lord, and we want godly wisdom from these psalms, not anything of man. And so, uh, minister to our hearts, in Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. Can you remember the songs you chose for your wedding? You probably can. Ideally, they should represent the love you have for one another to your gathered guests, and they can also create a romantic atmosphere. Every breath you take by the police was, and I think still is, wildly popular at weddings. Have you listened to it besides the main chorus? Here is a sampling of the lyrics, not all the lyrics, but here's some of the lyrics in that song. Every move you make and every vow you break, every smile you fake, every claim you stake, I'll be watching you. Since you've been gone, I've been lost without a trace. I dream at night, I can only see your face. I look around, but it's you I can't replace. I feel cold and I long for your embrace. I keep crying, baby, baby, please. Can't you see you belong to me? How my poor heart aches with every step you take. It's not exactly a romantic love song. Uh, imagine Vincent Price narrating that. It's clear she left him, broke her vows, but he thinks she belongs to him. He's sinking into a sociopathic despair. She might need to go into WITSEC. It's just creepy. Psalm 45 is a song of love between a groom and his bride. It's a wedding song. While it may have been sung at the ceremony of a Hebrew king or kings, it most certainly looks forward to the wedding that is a prominent feature in the second coming of Jesus to the earth. In the Revelation, we read, and I quote from chapter 19, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb is a name for Jesus Christ. It's used of him 29 times in the Revelation. He is the groom. A saint is anyone and everyone who has been drawn to Jesus by the cross, by which he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Psalm 45 is an old-fashioned love song that has staying power, written by a saint in love with the Lord that he's talking about under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. The song has at least these two movements. 
In verses 1 through 9, the song calls your attention to the majesty of the groom's arrival. The remaining verses are about the beauty of the bride as she appears with him. I'll organize my comments around two simple points. Number one, your groom will be revealed in his majesty. And then number two, your groom will reveal you in your beauty. Let's take a look at the groom in verses one through nine. Merging two lives into one sounds so romantic, but Bono is apparently disappointed that fans don't see how utterly unromantic are the lyrics of the U2 song, One. Here's a quote. I have certainly met a hundred people who've had it at their weddings. I tell them, are you mad? It's about splitting up. The lines like, we're one, but we're not the same. We hurt each other, then we do it again, aren't really solid wedding material. And so those of you who are not married yet, uh, read through the lyrics of the songs that you choose, uh, just uh, so that people aren't chuckling during your wedding. Uh, As we proceed, I want you to think of Psalm 42 as our more appropriate wedding processional song. And so verse 1, Psalm 45 rather, To the chief musician, set to the lilies, a contemplation of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. David delivered this psalm to the chief musician. I wonder how many songs were submitted to the chief musician by various artists. There are extra biblical books that aren't considered inspired, books that were written at the same time the Bible was written over those centuries. There must have been extra biblical psalms. In fact, we know there are because Solomon, for example, wrote a thousand songs, but only one of them made it to the Bible. David must have certified this one inspired before submitting it. That's one thing I love about, I haven't watched it in, gosh, I don't know how many years, but American Idol, Everybody's kind of familiar with it. The auditions are the best part because some people really nail it and other people are just terrible. And and the thing I always think about is why don't you just tell your son or your daughter or your brother or sister that they are terrible? Why do we prop people up and say, oh, you have a marvelous singing voice. You could be famous. No, you can't. It's awful. It's it's mediocre at best. All you do is, is falsely encourage people. Don't do that. I know it's hard. It's hard to look at somebody and say, you stink. Don't quit your day job. I mean, it, you know, but it's, it's helpful. And so I guess, the, I'm guessing they got a lot of Psalms uh, submitted, but David's, David would come through. And I'm, I'm sure David wrote songs that weren't uh, included in the Psalter, but certainly Solomon did. Uh, and so it's just an interesting uh, thought. Set to the lilies. Now, this may have been a well-known tune. Or it may refer to a stringed instrument of a certain shape. We just don't know. A contemplation of the sons of Korah. We've said before that this means the sons of Korah were the particular worship team selected to perform certain psalms. They had a a sound that would just be perfect for uh, certain psalms. And David said, hey, this one's going to be done by the sons of Korah. A song of love. And more than love, it's a song for the wedding of the beloved. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This reads like an intro to the song itself. David often wrote of his despair, of his exile, of the suffering of his soul. So many of the Psalms are in the category of of just being broken before the Lord and 
going through trials and all. This psalm has a very good theme. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of when Jude said, hey, I wanted to write a letter concerning the common faith, but instead the Holy Spirit put this message on my heart. And now David, he must be excited thinking, hey, God wants me to write a love song, a wedding song. What a joy. What a different theme than I'm usually used to. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm sure that God didn't always give David the same experience in songwriting. I can say that because God uh, likes to shake things up. He likes to teach us differently and communicate to us in different ways. We don't know if this song came to him all at once or a little at a time. He talked to modern songwriters, both secular and sacred, and they'll tell you that some of these songs they ruminate over for a long time. They have the melody or they have a little bit of lyric and then they finish it over time. Others say, man, one night, bam, the whole thing came to me just in a, in a package. And so we don't know which this was. And so David had to be ready to write it down. I think that's one meaning of my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I envision him being in, interrupted in his kingly business to jot down bits and pieces of it. I, I always thought the Lord had a sense of humor, and I could see David, you know, in some high-level meeting with his generals, and then all of a sudden he thinks, oh, wow, that would be a great turn of phrase. Hang on, guys, I got to write this down. I can't afford to forget this. This is going to go into Psalm 45. Yeah, I know we're at war, but you can't believe what the Lord just showed me. And so uh, I just think that's what he has in mind, that I'm always ready to write down what the Lord has gifted me with. As we get into the song, there's something we must bear in mind. This song was undoubtedly sung at royal weddings. Its first application was a popular wedding song in the nation of Israel. But it is immediately obvious something more was going on. In verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You can't really say that about any earthly king, even as an exaggeration. Uh, and so it's clear that more is going on. And then David didn't know this, but the writer to the Hebrew Christians was inspired by the Holy Spirit to quote this psalm. And he applied it to Jesus, cementing the truth that it looks beyond any earthly wedding. That's what makes it a messianic psalm. It talks about the coming of the Messiah as king. And what we're tracking on Sunday morning in my studies are messianic psalms or psalms in which Jesus quoted from the Old Testament. And so definitely about the Messiah. It is thus okay for us to read back into it a fuller revelation we have in the completed word of God, but at the same time we want to preserve the beauty of the psalm as a love song by not overdoing it. Similar to parables, not everything has a meaning. Some things are just there to tell the story, or they're there because of the original context. Uh, you'll see in a minute we'll talk about the companions of the bride and uh, there's some wild ideas about who they might be and stuff. And, uh, but just when you're looking at the word, just think, hey, everything doesn't have to be uh, something. And you don't want to twist and wrench the scriptures to fit your own application. Verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. This is all true of Jesus, of course. Fairer is a great romantic word we rarely use anymore. In fact, to get to its romantic definition, you have to weed through five or six other common uses. One of its meanings is attractive. Jesus had and he has an attractiveness. He attracts people to himself. 
He did it when he was on the earth and he does it today. He does it because he loves them. He draws them with an everlasting love and he died for them. He said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. So there is an attractiveness about Jesus uh, that is supernatural. We're not talking about his looks or anything like that. Uh, he attracts people. Grace is poured upon your lips. No one ever spoke the way Jesus did. Anything you think he said or says is going to be overflowing with grace. I've, over the years, you know, because I've had to sit through lots of disputes in marriages and between Christians, um, you know, people will get into, well, the Lord, the Lord told me this about you. And that's terrible, ugly. And you think, I've had to say, hey, you know what? The Lord would never say anything. I, I know that's not true because the Lord can't say that because he's gracious. He can rebuke, he can exhort, he can extol and all those things, but uh, he, he can't speak in a way that isn't seasoned with grace. And so that's a beautiful thing about Jesus. God has blessed you forever in that the wedding of the lamb and his saints is what all human history has been moving toward and it will go on forever. Verse three, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. I think it's cool when a groom gets married in uniform. Anybody here get married in your military uniform or some other uniform? God bless you. That's the, I love those uniforms. They're great. I became a chaplain just so I could have a uniform. Uh, that's, that's not true, but it's kind of half true. Uh, anyway, the groom king in this psalm was girt with a sword. It anticipated Jesus in his second coming. In his case, the sword is the word he speaks, conquering a hostile world gathered against him. He'll ride a great white steed at his second coming. And so you see how this prefigures the Lord. Verse four, and in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Because Jesus humbled himself to come as a man, his father's right hand of authority was upon Jesus so that he might embody truth, humility, and righteousness, thereby prospering or succeeding as our savior. Verse five, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Our future wedding procession will be unusual to say the least. We return with Jesus at the height of the battle of Armageddon on the earth. You might say it's a destination wedding. You ever been to a destination wedding? I'm always, anytime somebody tells me they're getting married, I think, oh, is it a destination wedding? And I suggest some crazy destination. There's a bunch of stories, I, I, they're funny, but they didn't really fit in, but about uh, brides and uh, especially uh, bridezillas, I guess you would call them, who invite people to a destination wedding that's gonna cost you like five, ten thousand $10,000 to get there and, you know, and all that, and they get mad because nobody responds to that. But anyway, uh, you're invited to the wedding of the ages to be held in the Valley of Megiddo at the Battle of Armageddon. Your dress is the robe of righteousness, you're saved for the date. And so that's how an invitation goes. Uh, but it is, it's a destination wedding uh, and it comes at that terrible time on earth's history. The armies of the world turn on Jesus at the battle of Armageddon. They're fighting each other, but when they see the Lord coming, uh, they turn on him and they're destroyed easily. Verse six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Eternity with Jesus in glorified bodies that have free will, but that can no longer sin, Righteousness restored to God's fallen creation. Huge wow factor when you start to meditate on those things. 
You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Trinitarian note. God the Father anointed Jesus, and that anointing was by the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit, one God, three persons. And so people say, well, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, but it does teach the triunity of God. One God existing in three persons. To be full with the Holy Spirit means to have an inner unspeakable gladness. No one ever lived so filled with and so led by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our example. Remember when Jesus was on earth in his incarnation, he set aside the prerogatives of his deity. He was still God. He didn't cease being God to become a man and then become God again. That's, that's a heresy. He was fully God and fully man, but he only acted like a man so that he could be our example. Uh, and, and so when we see Jesus, we're seeing the perfect example of a spirit-filled, spirit-led man. We're seeing the possibility. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing for him to have been anointed by the spirit. As a man, Jesus loved all that was right, hated all that was wrong. I interpret that as meaning he was motivated by righteousness to go to the cross where he would destroy wrong or evil once for all. Verse 8, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Jesus doesn't rent a tux that doesn't fit. You ever been in a wedding party or even been the groom and you go get your tux and it's, it's not at all what you ordered or somebody's got your extra large jacket and you have their extra small jacket and you're, it's crazy. Or, you, you know, you forgot to get shoes or something like that. Or, or there's always some goofball in your wedding. I mean, I don't care what people wear to weddings. It's not my wedding. What do I care? Uh, you know, you wear whatever you want. Uh, so I hope this doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. But, you know, some people want their wedding to be very formal. And there's one goofball, usually a groomsman, who has Zoris on, you know, and their toes and their toe jam are sticking out and stuff. And it just, you know, and, and you can't do anything about getting them to wear a tuck. And, and so uh, Jesus isn't going to look like that. He's going to have a specially made, specially scented garment. Being glad is again highlighted. And so I like that. Jesus is going to smell nice at our wedding. Uh, that may seem weird, but uh, this is essentially romantic. This is a love song uh, and, and he's got all the bases covered. You would hope that a person would look their best on their wedding day. Now, if you, want, if you got married some other way, if you low-keyed your wedding, you know, backyard, living room, just wore your regular clothes, that's fine. And around here, dressy is a collared shirt. If you have a collared shirt on, you're ready to, you know, to the Marine Corps ball practically around here. I've seen some stuff that I thought, okay, this is, you're just off to a bad start dressed like that. But anyway... Uh, I don't understand. I've never understood. I've never understood. It's a complete rabbit trail, but I've never understood why people sometimes don't like to get dressed up sometimes. I mean, that's all, at funerals and weddings. That's all the men talk about is that I got this monkey suit on. I can't wait to get this monkey suit off. All right. Monkey. But anyway, you're the one wearing it. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now, remember what I said earlier. This psalm was not wholly written for the second coming. We aren't looking to make 
a prophetic statement out of everything. Forcing the king's daughters to mean something is one way analytics can ruin this psalm. This could describe the wedding of any number of Hebrew kings. And so I'm not going to make any suggestion that it ties into the second coming. It doesn't have to. It just doesn't have to. It is a good segue to the second movement of the psalm because it introduces the queen. We're not accustomed to a wedding that focuses so much attention on the groom. Usually here when we do weddings here at the church, I enter from the back there with the groom following me. And and all it is is a signal that the wedding is kind of starting. Nobody stands up and says, wow, look at the groom. Oh, my gosh. What a beautiful man. So we just hang out up here. Bridesmaids come down one at a time in their purple dresses. Little kids come, you know, throwing whatever they throw and get stopped halfway. Oh, it's so cute. And then the bride. Every move you make. You know, and then, but anyway, the bride is like, oh, what a beautiful bride. And, and it's all really on the bride. And that's fine. That's okay. That's our culture. How can you not first see Jesus proceeding from heaven? Sword girded upon his steed, proceeding but leading his blood-bought, declared righteous, glorified bride to establish rule and reign over the kingdom of God on the earth. If that's not magnificent, I don't know what is. Second, your groom will then reveal you in your beauty. Wedding ceremonies are essentially reality makeovers. Saying yes to the dress, picking out an amazing wedding cake, and asking whose wedding is it anyway, potentially turning into bridezillas, as I mentioned. As for grooms, around these parts, it's more like my big redneck wedding. In the remaining verses, here comes the bride. Verse 10, listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. This is, more, uh, this is a more jealously romantic way of saying you should make your family and friends subordinate to your marriage. That you should leave father and mother and cleave to your spouse. Applied to us in Jesus, we must put him undeniably first, sometimes at the cost of losing family and friends. Some of you have a testimony you could give right now of losing family and friends uh, to some extent because you came to Jesus Christ and they didn't or don't understand it. Uh, some of you have been disowned by family as a result of that. And then there's other people, none of you, of course, but there's other people who compromise their faith because they don't want to hurt family and friends and they don't want to lose those people. And so, you know, Jesus at some point says, hey, I'm jealous. I don't want to share you with your family and friends. If they don't love me, I need you to love me and we're just going to go on together. And so uh, it's an interesting concept, jealousy. We think it's something bad, but I'm glad that God is jealous over me, loves me fiercely and protectively. Verse 11, so the, uh, so the king rather will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord, worship him. This contains yet another clue the psalmist was looking at an eternal wedding. The groom is deserving of worship, something reserved for God alone. And by the way, since the groom is Jesus, this is a statement of his deity. So we have the Trinity, we have the deity of Christ. Who says the Psalms don't teach doctrine? They imply it for sure. Verse 12, and the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought 
they shall enter the king's palace. These four verses sing like they are wholly about a real royal wedding in Israel. There's nothing obvious here to indicate that Jesus' second coming with his bride is being described. And so I again emphasize that we must be careful to not read into the Bible things that aren't intended. Now, you may see some things there, and they may make sense and be defensible scripturally, but again, we don't have to know exactly who the daughter of Tyre is and who the royal daughters are and who are the virgins. And the fact that they mention virgins in Matthew 24 and 25 doesn't mean it ties into these virgins. There is a wedding going on, a real earthly wedding at this time too. And that's what this psalm is pointing to. So uh, you want to find something deeper, have at it. Verse 16, instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. This sounds like a toast to the groom that he would have many royal sons in the kingdom. I can see somebody saying, instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. Skull! Well, that was a Viking thing. I'm sorry. But anyway, now that is something, though, we can apply to our union with Jesus by our preaching the gospel, revealing the king. Those who believe become sons and daughters in the heavenly family. They become kingdom kids, for lack of a better term. And so this is kind of a different metaphor, a new metaphor. We're like a bride, but we are also like sons and daughters. God uses many metaphors, many similes and types and illustrations to show us what a relationship with him is like. That's why the Bible is written in so many different forms, narrative, history, poetry, uh, you know, those kinds of things, the only theory I can think of right now. Uh, but um, from every angle, from every point of view so that you can get it. And, and sometimes, you know, that it's like, oh, I get it now because I see this illustrated this way. This is what God is trying to say. Or I see this type, especially when you're a young Christian and somebody, you're listening to somebody teach and they, they reveal a type and you're like, wow, Abraham sacrificing Isaac is just like God the father sacrificing his son. Now it makes sense. And you're excited because you understand that, you know, that's why God did that so that we could understand his love for us. And so uh, the psalmist here goes into a completely different metaphor. Paul the Apostle does this all the time. He's a mixed metaphor guy. He, he would have flunked modern English. His teacher would have constantly wrote mixed metaphor. But uh, he just said, hey, I'm going to, we're going to use sports. We're going to use marriage. We're going to use everything we can to try and communicate the love of God through Jesus Christ. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. A future king and his bride who will go on through generations, then forever and ever. That's exactly how things are going to go. The generations hints to the 1,000-year reign of Jesus from Jerusalem over the post-tribulation world. Forever and ever is eternity. We should each be stunned by the statement, the king will greatly desire your beauty. Certainly not our natural beauty, but the beauty the king makes us over to. He sees us after his work in us is through. The Christian life is an ultimate makeover. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. You could say that you're the corpse bride. When Jesus comes into your life, you're born again, made alive together with Christ. Over the course of your new life, you are being transformed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. When Jesus comes to resurrect and rapture the church, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed when the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In heaven, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Maranatha, let's pray.